Well, welcome to Fellowship Baptist Church. I'm so glad that you came. My name is Terry Coons, and I'm the senior pastor here for those who may be visiting with us either today in the room or joining us on Facebook Live right now. So thankful that you came to worship on this Easter Sunday morning with us. And it's our desire, as always, as every Sunday morning when we gather together as a local assembly, as those who have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it is our desire to give him glory. Amen, church? That's what we're all about here at Fellowship. Um, we're not about a production. We're not about always looking best. I mean, for goodness sake, look at the senior pastor. It's quite obvious we're not about a production and always looking our best, right? But we, what we are about is the glory of Christ, not only in this community, but around the world. Amen, church? Amen, church. So we are going to, uh, this morning, of course, as is fitting on this day, uh, every, every Sunday, but on this day, we're going to talk about the resurrection. Do you know this one? He is risen. You do know this one. Fantastic. Let's do it again. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go into God's word together and talk about that glorious truth. What is the gospel? Paul states it very clearly for us in 1 Corinthians. He gives us a passionate description here in chapter 15. And let me read this to you. Follow along with me. It's on the screen. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here, church, is where Paul very clearly and very clearly gives us the gospel message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So what is the gospel message? Paul gives it to us here very clearly. He tells the Corinthians, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. And this is good news, is it not, church? This is good news. And as we have been studying in the Gospel of Mark the last several Sundays, we know now that our response to this gospel, to this good news, is to repent and to believe the good news. Now, what does it matter? What does it matter if Christ is risen? Church, our very faith, all of our belief as Christians, as Christ followers, as those who have trusted in Christ for our salvation, hangs on this belief, the belief of a resurrection that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is foundational to what we believe as Christ followers. 
And, and there are many in this world. Let me pick on the new atheists, as they're so-called, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett. There are many from scientists to philosophers to our own neighbors and our coworkers, and sadly, maybe even family members who would say that we are foolish for such a belief, that we're foolish for accepting a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as truth, that we are foolish for that, for accepting that story as truth. And undoubtedly, church, we have to admit, to believe in the resurrection does require faith. It does require faith. But I would argue, and I will argue this morning, not blind faith. For there are also many scientists and philosophers who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are many who have examined the evidence, historical, archaeological, biblical, the testimony of history, and have come to the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many of the greatest thinkers in history have been people of faith. And I would argue this morning that there is ample evidence that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, and that this is indeed the most reasonable option. I only have time this morning to give you some of the arguments. There are many more reasons that, if time permitted, we could go into. But just know that I'm giving you the tip of the iceberg here. And, and my hope, my hope is that maybe this would lead you to do your own study on this, to have even more assurance of your faith in the resurrection. But this morning I've chosen three facts that I believe to be very compelling that I want to walk you through during our time together. First of all, the empty tomb. There is much evidence supporting the fact that Jesus' tomb was found empty. Let me just give you two things to consider on this point. Number one, the disciples would not have been able to preach the resurrection in Jerusalem, had the tomb not been empty. Had Christ's tomb not been empty, the disciples would have found it very difficult to preach that he rose from the grave in the very city he was buried. Consider that. Christianity began in the very city where Jesus was publicly crucified and buried in Jerusalem. And if this was a hoax, if it wasn't true, this was really bad planning on the part of the disciples. Why do I say this? Because if the empty tomb was false, all the Jewish authorities had to do was to produce the body, to go to the tomb and to get the body of Jesus and to show it to the people of Jerusalem. Had the tomb not been empty, the disciples would not have been able to preach the resurrection as they did. Biblical historian Gary Habermas says this, Jerusalem is absolutely the, the last place, the last place on earth for Jesus' followers to proclaim that he had been raised, unless his grave was empty. Otherwise, a Sunday afternoon stroll 
would clearly indicate that the stone was still in place, revealing their erroneous message. So that's number one. Number two, as far as proofs for the empty tomb, the earliest Jewish testimony against the Christians presupposes the empty tomb. Matthew writes this for us in his gospel. He says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Matthew is writing his gospel decades after the resurrection. And he said, this is the story that the Jews have circulated to answer this question of the empty tomb. But what Matthew is doing here as a Jew is refuting the widespread G Jewish explanation of the resurrection. What was their, their explanation? That the disciples stole the body. The Jewish authorities didn't deny the empty tomb. Don't miss that. They didn't deny that the tomb was empty. This explanation that they gave as a counter reason actually backs up the belief that the empty tomb was there. This is actually historical evidence of the absolute highest quality, according to historians, because it, it is coming not from the proponents of the Christian faith, but from its very enemies. Now, there are some that have tried to explain the empty tomb in less than miraculous ways. And there are several theories out there. Uh, there's, and you can research these, jot these down if you're interested. But conspir the conspiracy theory, that it was all a big conspiracy, and we certainly know something about conspiracy theories today, don't we, church? The apparent death theory, the wrong tomb theory. And I wish I had, again, I wish I had the time to explain all these to you, but let me just say that at least to me, they are anything but compelling. The evidence is stacked against any of these alternate theories. Very simple, very simply, there is not a plausible, natural explanation for Jesus' tomb being empty. If you're familiar, of, if you're familiar with William of Ockham, and Occam's razor, a philosophical principle, I'll say it to you this way, the simplest and the most logical explanation is the supernatural. And so I make apologies to that old Scottish philosopher, David Hume, who said that there is no room for the supernatural. And I'll apologize to Thomas Jefferson, who ripped out of the Bible any miracle the resurrection for his own version of the Bible. And I'll apologize to any other naturalist who says, no, 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 there has to be a natural explanation, but I'm standing on the fact that the simplest explanation for the empty tomb is supernatural. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. So first, the empty tomb is evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Second of all, we do need to also consider the resurrection appearances. 
So again, let me just remind you of just a few of those verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 we read. He appeared, Jesus Christ appeared to Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And, and look, look what Paul writes here. They're still alive. Most of them are still alive. In other words, if you want to check what I'm saying to you, people of Corinth, go and find one of these people that the resurrected Christ appeared to, and they will bear witness to this. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, also as to one abnormally born. So again, I can't walk you through all of these accounts. Again, please do your own study on this passage, but I just want to focus on two appearances from this text that I believe to be very significant, very significant in the people that Paul notes here. First of all, James. James is mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 15. There's James, the former skeptic. Now, lest we be confused, this is not James, the brother of John. This is not the James, one of the 12 disciples. Who is this James? This is James, Jesus Christ's younger brother. This is James, the younger brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic during his public ministry. Jesus, his big bro, right, he did not believe his claims at the time of his public ministry. Mark 3, 21, if you want some texts for this, tells us that at one point, Jesus' earthly family, i.e. his brothers, tried to take charge of him. <laughs> they tried to pull him in during his public ministry. They didn't believe in him. They said that he was out of his mind. John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us that his brothers did not believe in him during his public ministry. But just a few years later, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, who is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem? James, this James, not James, the brother of John. He's already dead. Herod, Herod has already killed him. But James, the brother of Jesus Christ, the one who did not believe in him during his public ministry, is now pastoring the largest church in, in the empire because of his belief. Who authors the book of James in our New Testament? This James. James, the former skeptic, now is pastoring the largest assembly of believers, and he writes a letter that is going to be put into the New Testament. Why? Because he saw his brother alive after his execution and death. How many of you think that might make a believer out of you? Oh my goodness, you really are God. <laughs> That's the response I tend to think might have happened. Jesus, you were crucified. You were buried and now you're alive. I, I guess I believe now. He came to believe that his brother really was the Messiah, the Son of God. One other is Paul, the former persecutor. Paul's writing this to the Corinthians, and his own story is very compelling. Remember Paul's story. He was a brilliant young Jewish scholar who was opposed to the message of Jesus and zealously persecuted those who believed it. And he ends up embracing the faith that he once tried to destroy. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. 
and he writes a good portion of the New Testament. What changed him? What changed Paul? Paul's life changed because he had seen the risen Lord. And Paul would go on to write this to the Philippians in chapter 3. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul writes, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider it lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. The English translation of that word from the Greek is tamed down quite a bit. I'm not going to tell you what it really says. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from by God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings because being becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul writes because he's seen the resurrected Lord. He's no longer a persecutor of this faith. He throws it all away. He says, it's all rubbish. It's all garbage. It's all filth compared to knowing Christ and to fellowship with him. What changed him, church? What changed him was seeing Jesus, seeing Jesus. The skeptic and the persecutor both transformed because they had seen the risen Lord. What evidence is there of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? First of all, the empty tomb. Second of all, the resurrection appearances. The third fact, the third and final uh, piece of evidence that I will give to you this morning is this. The third fact that contributes to the case for the resurrection is the resolve of the first evangelists. Seen the resurrected Christ absolutely changed the witnesses. It absolutely transformed them. There's, there is no question that the disciples' belief in the resurrection led to a radical transformation in their lives. Remember, before the resurrection, when Jesus was taken captive and executed, most of them had abandoned him. Most of them had denied him. In fact, Well, in contrast, after the resurrection, the remainder of their lives were undeniably and radically altered. They were willing to now die for their faith. Most of them were martyred. Let me just share a few. According to, this is all according to church history. First of all, James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod. He was one of the first martyrs. That's John's brother. James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death, according to church history. Thomas, the the disciple, was impaled with a spear. Andrew, Bartholomew, Philip, and Peter were all crucified like their Lord. Peter, who was crucified, I believe it was 65 AD, in the city of Rome, 
requested that he be inverted on the cross because he did not feel himself worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus did. That's what these people, these followers of Christ, were willing to do because of their strong belief in the resurrection. They willingly gave their lives precisely because they were absolutely convinced that they had seen the risen Jesus. They believed that if Jesus was raised from the dead, that they would be raised as well. You see, brothers and sisters, the sting of death was now gone. Pastor Ken read this passage earlier. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about this, and after having seen the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, he will later in his ministry write these words, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and in the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And Paul would later, after writing this, be executed in Rome. He would be beheaded, which was actually an allowance given to him because he was a Roman citizen. So they didn't crucify him, but they took his head. Peter had written that we can face the trials of life with joy because of the resurrection. This is from Peter's first letter where he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. He's talking about his salvation here. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter is going to write this, and just shortly after this is going to be crucified in the city of Rome. Again, according to church history, perhaps on the same day that the Apostle Paul is beheaded. Three pieces of evidence for your consideration this morning, church. The empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, and the resolve of the first evangelist that it absolutely changed them. I believe And I can only speak for myself, but I believe that these three facts make up a powerful cumulative case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many of history's most brilliant minds, though, have examined this evidence and have believed. Now, what does it matter? Why should we care? What does it matter if Christ is risen again? I'm going to circle back around to that original point earlier. Paul makes it clear for us in 1 Corinthians 15, just a little bit after he gives us the gospel. This is what he writes. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What does it matter? What is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, if Christ isn't risen, 
then his claims concerning his identity and his mission are false. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, if Christ isn't alive now, if he's not risen, then your faith is absolutely futile. If Christ isn't risen, then you're all still in your sins. If Christ isn't risen, then Christians who have died believing that they would be resurrected and live for eternity are actually lost. They're just dead. If Christ isn't risen, then we, all of us, me too, we're wasting our lives. And the world should pity us. And if we're smart, we would just get on with it and get as much out of life as we possibly can because that's all there is for us. That's all Paul's saying. No big deal. It's a really big deal, isn't it, church? The resurrection of Jesus Christ really matters. Brothers and sisters, there's absolutely nothing that can matter more. There is nothing in history that has a greater significance than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I'm asking you this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is alive today? Do you believe, church, that he is risen? You see, I make no apologies. I make no apologies for my belief in a risen Lord. I make no apologies for believing that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. I believe it is a very reasonable, reasonable step of faith. And I stand with the Apostle Paul who wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of that truth. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I believe it's true. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the gospel message has the power to change people's lives. I've watched it happen. I've watched people be transformed by the gospel. It is the power of God. To those who are perishing, it may be foolish, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God, church. But maybe there's someone here today or listening online right now that is not sure what they believe about Jesus Christ. And if that's you, please know this is a safe place to ask questions. This church, that, that I am a safe person for you to ask questions to. And if you're wondering, if you're doubting, if you're finding it hard to believe, if it's someone online, please contact us. But could I encourage you today, if that's you, take a step of faith and see what happens. Take a reasonable Step of faith, not a blind leap in the dark, because that's not what our faith is. But take a reasonable step of faith toward Christ and see what happens. With all of the evidence that supports the resurrection, it's a reasonable step of faith. I believe this is the way God designed it. God did not design our faith so that it's a blind leap in the dark. And God also, though, wants us 
to respond to him by faith. And so he designed it as a reasonable step of faith by his design. Believe in Christ. Take that step and see where it leads you. You really have one of three options. And with this, I close. This is what Oxford and Cambridge University professor C.S. Lewis wrote years ago, who he himself, by his own admission in his spiritual autobiography, says that he was brought kicking and screaming dragged into the kingdom of heaven, England's most unlikely convert. He didn't want to become a Christian. C.S. Lewis used to call God the great meddler. He's up there meddling with our lives. And he was an atheist for decades. But he came into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming because he examined the evidence and he said, this is the most reasonable explanation. This makes sense. I believe that this is true. And here is part of his thinking on this. I have it for you on the screen. But this is what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people have often said about him. He's talking about Jesus Christ now in, in the book. He says, this is what the foolish thing that people have often said about Jesus. I, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. Don't you hear this? I, I respect Jesus. I honor Jesus. I think he was a great teacher. He's a great man. Best example of love ever. What a great guy. Jesus was a great guy, right? You hear that type of thing out there. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. We hear that as well. C.S. Lewis writes, that is the one thing we must not say. That is the one thing that doesn't make any sense, is what C.S. Lewis is saying. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he's a poached egg. Lewis was British. I guess that was big there, poached eggs. I don't know. I've never had one. But on the level with the man who said he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. Lewis is very clearly saying, look, don't give me this nonsense of Jesus Christ being a great moral teacher. A great moral teacher is not going to claim to be God. If he's not really who he says he is, then he's either a demon, he's a liar, or he's nuts. One of those two. And so here he says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And so you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Worship team, would you come up and join me? And as they come and we prepare to sing, let me just share a small piece of my story in closing. Church, who do you believe Jesus to be? A demon, a lunatic, or Lord? My testimony is that I was 21 years old, I had accepted Christ when I was 10, but then I had gradually walked away from my faith. And I was 21 years old, and I was hanging on by a thread spiritually. 
I was far from God. And for the first time, I realized it hit me like a ton of bricks one day that I could walk away from the faith. I could walk away from Christianity, the faith that I had been raised in. Now, my theology now informs me that actually Jesus Christ had me in the palm of his hand that whole time, and he's promised me he will never let me go. And I'm quite certain that's the God point of view of what happened next in the story. But it was, from my perspective, it was Peter's words in John chapter 6 that God used to bring me back. And these still today... This still today is probably my favorite verse in the Bible, my favorite passage, because when I was 21, this is what brought me back to the Lord. Peter here says, after Jesus has just lost the crowd, and when I say lost the crowd, you, want, you see, Jesus had never read that book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Jesus masterfully said the wrong thing when he had a huge crowd. He was the master of it. And he just preached this sermon in John chapter 6, and he went from having 20,000 followers to having 12 guys once again. And, and I just picture him, eyes towards heaven, preaching and saying things like, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. And people are running away as fast as they can. And he gets done preaching and he looks down and it's just 12 people once again. <laughs> These same 12 guys. And I think in a, a moment where we see the humanity of Jesus Christ so clearly, he genuinely asks these men, are you guys leaving too? And this verse, these words by Peter, since I was 21 years old, have been my favorite words in Scripture. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, where else are we going to go? This is the only thing that makes sense. We believe. We know that you're God, and, and yeah, you do say some kind of strange things, and, and we don't really know what you're talking about most of the time. But we believe in you. We believe that you're the truth. And we're going to follow you because there's absolutely nowhere else for us to go. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Was he a demon? No. Was he a lunatic? No. Church, was he Lord? Amen. Amen. Then there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. Nothing else makes sense. Church, he is risen. Live in that reality. It is a step of faith but it's a very reasonable step of faith.